Hello, and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. The problem with a purely mechanical view of the universe is that nothing has value, or at least comparative value. Kindness and cruelty are just choices. But can you really live that way? Teaching team member Caleb Click continues the series Imago Dei with this sermon entitled Image Bearing and Dignity, which covers Psalm 8, verses 1 to 9. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. If you've got your Bibles, open up with me, if you would, to Psalm chapter 8. Uh, this, this is one of my favorite psalms. And I feel like every time I get up here and preach, I say this is one of my favorite texts. But I really mean it. I love this passage. And the preacher in me wishes that I had three to four sermons to talk about what's in this passage because there's so much contained in these nine verses. But all we've got time for this morning is one sermon, and that means we're going to be drilling in to the one central question that sits at the heart of this text. A question that if we answer incorrectly, not only will we fail to see our own significance in the eyes of God, but we'll also fail to see our neighbor's significance and the worth that they have in God's eyes too. That question of what is man that God cares for him. Let's read Psalm 8 to see the answer. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, Our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is God's word. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we come to you with a deep sense of our own need this morning. Lord, we come to this text as those who live in the world of the enemy and the avenger, and we need the God who can silence the enemy with the cry of a small child. Would you speak in all your power? Would you speak through me in my weakness? Would you take this text and would you give us eyes to see the beauty and the glory and the sufficiency of Jesus in the midst of it and the incredible value and worth you place on every individual human life, including our own. Would you do this in the precious name of Jesus, your son? Amen. A couple years ago, a woman named Rachel Denhollander stood in a courtroom in Michigan And she looked across the courtroom to a judge, and she asked him this very simple but powerful question. She said, how much is a little girl worth? How much is a young woman worth? On that particular day, in that particular Michigan courtroom, there may have been no more significant question that she could have asked. Because here's why Rachel Denhollander was standing there in that courtroom. She was one of hundreds of young girls who had been abused by a doctor named Larry Nasser. 
a man who had been entrusted by USA Gymnastics to care for their athletes, and a man who had used that trust to abuse. And USA Gymnastics, not only had they known about the abuse, but for years they had covered it up. Because in their eyes, gold medals and corporate sponsorships mattered more than those little girls. And so Rachel Den Hollander was standing there in that courtroom looking across it at the judge and also to her left to the man who had abused her saying, how much is a little girl worth? Is she a cog in the machine? Is she just a little piece of so little significance that she can be sacrificed on the altar of people's illicit desires? Or is she a human being whose dignity and worth and value are assigned to her not by man but by God himself? How much is a little girl worth? Larry Nasser in USA Gymnastics said not very much. And it's a story we've seen happen over and over again, isn't it? Wherever we see people look at others and assign to them worth and value based on some human conception, what always follows its injustice like it exposed itself in that courtroom on that day. It's what we saw in Nazi Germany. It's what we saw here in the United States with slavery and Jim Crow. It's what we're experiencing right now in a nation that looks at the unborn and sees them as expendable. It's the thing that every one of us wrestles with when we go through our days, and without even thinking about it, we start asking, are there people here that I don't have to really care for? I want us to look at the Bible's answer this morning, because it's an echo of Rachel Den Hollander's own. How much is a human being worth? Psalm 8 says more than you could possibly imagine. Because dignity, the worth and value of a human being, dignity isn't something you have to earn. Dignity is not something that some people have and others don't. Dignity is not even something that can be taken away, even though many people have tried, because dignity is inherent to your humanity as one who has been made in the image of God. Psalm 8 Psalm 8 says to that question, how much is a human being worth? Psalm 8 says to us that we are worth the life of the infinite Son of God. Because here's the care of the one this psalm speaks of. He not only sent his Son into this world in human flesh. He not only sent him to die in the flesh, but he has raised him in that flesh and he has seated him at his right hand with glory and honor, waiting for the day when he will return to restore every single broken thing, to subject everything to himself. And he is the one who offers to restore the image of God in us. And it's a reality that even as it does for David, it should cause us to stop and in awe and in wonder worship him. A reality that has profound implications for the way we live our lives. And David, David starts it by pointing us to the glory of God in the heavens. He says, you want to see just a little glimpse of the enormity of God's radiance and glory. All you have to do is choose a warm summer night, walk outside, and look up. He says in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, 
How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work, and don't miss this, of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. David walks outside and he looks up at the night sky, that seemingly infinite canopy of stars, billions upon billions of them, and David, David looks at God and notices it's a direct address. He says, God, that's the work of your fingers. You know, my, my office right now, it is drowning in the works of my daughter's fingers. I've got more bookmarks for my daughters than I have books. I have pictures of my house, of my family, uh, of, of each of my little girls. I have sweet notes that they have crafted together with my wife to send with me to work. And I have to say, every single one of those things, they are precious and they are beautiful. But we all know this to be true. While those things, the works of my daughter's fingers, they're beautiful, they are nothing compared to the beauty of my daughters. They have glory, but it's a derived glory. They're a pale reflection of the ones whose fingers made them. David says, that's the stars. They're the picture that you have slapped on your refrigerator compared to God. They are nothing compared. The Milky Way galaxy may have 100,000 million stars and be one of billions upon billions of galaxies, but guess what? Whatever glory they have, it is a derivative glory and a pale reflection of the God who made them. And if we see those things and we see them rightly, how can we possibly walk away from that experience and think that we are anything but a seemingly insignificant vapor? I mean, Look at us. Look at the person sitting on the couch. Look at the person sitting here in this room. Look at me. What are we? What's a person whose life spans just a few years compared to a star that spans a billion? What's a planet full of people? compared to the seemingly limitless expanse of the heavens. Apart from God's grace, how in the world could we ever look at those things and think that we are anything more than an insignificant speck of dust? And yet David, David worships. Because while we may be a speck of dust compared to the infinite expanse of the heavens, David knows something that should be precious to us and it's that we are a speck of dust that is precious to the God who created the heavens and the earth. He says, God, you are mindful. You care for man. You have the care of a shepherd for their sheep, the mindfulness of a loving father with their children. And God's people across the ages, we have not just known of this reality, of this mindfulness and this care. We've experienced it, haven't we? The God who, when we sin, picks us back up. The God who preserves and protects us when we are under attack. The God 
who in ways that we are often blind to is continuously providing for our every single need, and how can we escape? How can we escape looking at the person of Jesus, the eternal Son of God who assumed human flesh and entered into this broken, sinful world in order to save people like us? How can we look at that and not see the incredible mindfulness of God for people? Jesus didn't take the form of the stars. Jesus didn't take the form of an angel. Jesus came in the form that we are so quick to disparage, and he did it to save. And Psalm 8, verses 5 to 9 says, here's why. Because the glory of God in the heavens is nothing. It is nothing compared to the glory of God in humanity. You know, we live in a moment We have all sorts of answers to the question of what is man? What gives a human being worth or value? Capitalism says your value and your worth are in what you can produce, what you can buy, and what you can consume. Marxism says that your value is in what you can offer to the utopian state. Instagram says your value is in the sum of your likes and the number of your followers. Peter Singer The Australian moral philosopher, he says, to be a human being worthy of moral consideration, you have to have two things. One, you have to be self-aware. And second, you have to be capable, this is a quote, of perceiving yourself as an individual through time. Here's what that means. If you ask him what is man, Peter Singer's response would be not an infant, not the mentally disabled, not someone in a coma, not someone with dementia or with Alzheimer's. And he would go so far to say that because those people are not truly human, it is morally permissible if they inhibit the happiness of those entrusted with their care, it's morally permissible to kill them. He lectures at Princeton. Neil deGrasse Tyson He has an answer that sounds at least a little bit better. He says, what is man? Man's stardust. The atoms of our bodies, he writes, are traceable to the stars that manufactured them in their cores and exploded these enriched ingredients across our galaxy billions of years ago. For this reason, we are biologically connected to every living thing in the world. We are chemically connected to all molecules on earth, and we are atomically connected to all atoms in the universe, we are not figuratively, but literally stardust. Now that, that sounds a lot better than Peter Singer on the surface, doesn't it? We're made of the stars, there's something glorious and beautiful in us, but stop for a second and think through the implications of this. If that's all man is, if that's all we are, what's the difference between me and the cockroach I smashed in my bathroom this morning? We're both made of the stars, aren't we? We're just the trash of the stars. We're nothing. We have no significance or meaning. And we want to all be able to answer as a culture here. I'm not speaking to the church. As a culture, we want to say, and you see this everywhere, we want to say every individual person, even as Rachel Denhollander asked, Every individual person is worth everything that we possess. They have dignity and they have worth. But here's the problem. 
If our answers are like that, we can talk as loudly as we want, but in the end, all of our words are like the emperor's new clothes. They have nothing to ground them but the sound of our voice. There's nothing there. That's not the case with the Bible's answer. The Bible, the Bible says, what's man? More than you could imagine. He's the only thing out of all creation that is made in the image of God. Look at what David says. Yet you have made him, man, a little lower than the heavenly beings, verse 5, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. David says there's something in man that makes even the heavens look small. David, David isn't saying something original here. David is not just making something up and waxing poetic. David, he is paraphrasing in the form of a worshipful song the reality that we have been visiting these past three weeks, the reality of Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28, that says, what is man? Man is someone created in the image of God. And David says that means that there is a royal dignity that has been attached to every single one of us. He says here in the language of this text, we are crowned with glory and with honor. And while the stars may dwarf us, while the angels may overwhelm us with their power and their mystery, they, they're not made in the image of God. You are. Why does God care for man? Because man is the vehicle through which God, from the very moment of creation, intended to reveal himself in all his glory. And he hasn't given up on that idea. And this is where all of us start to object. That piece of us from Sunday school when we were little kids begins to shift uncomfortably in our seats. And we go, well, maybe that was true before the fall. Maybe once this was a dignity and a worth that we all possessed, but Adam fell, and while then we were crowned with glory and honor. Now, now all we've got is shame. Then we lived in paradise. Now we live in the wilderness of sin and of death. But look at Psalm 8. Has David forgotten the fall? Is David speaking of the world before the fall? No. What world is David speaking into? Verse 2. The world of the enemy and the avenger. David hasn't forgotten the fall. He hasn't forgotten Genesis 3. David's remembered Genesis 9. And he knows that while the image of God in man has been corrupted and defaced by sin, it has not been eradicated by sin. And while we are ruins, that image remains. And with it, the royal dignity that is inherent to it, which means every human being has value and worth. Even his language evokes this. He says, you're crowned with glory and honor. That verb, that suggests something that God is doing ongoingly. No matter who you are, 
No matter what you may have done, Psalm 8 looks at you and says, you are a human being crowned with glory and honor by God himself. That should stagger us. This has implications for us personally. You know, steel fancy Schaefer's line, every single one of us, we are ruins deserving of the wrath of God, but we're also glorious ones who invite his grace. What Psalm 8 says to you and to me personally is that you're not the sum of your father's words when you were a kid. You're not your job or your lack of one. You're not your color. You're not your intellect. You're not your beauty. And while our cancel-crazy culture may cancel you and say you deserve to be thrown into the abyss, God says there is nothing they can do that can actually take away your worth and your value. What is a human being worth? They're worth the life of the infinite Son of God. David sees it. David's worshiping because he knows that the God who has been mindful of him, he is a God who's not finished with his people. He is a God who is intent on restoring and saving every single thing that is broken. And what we know now from Hebrews 2 is that that promise, that hope that David had, that is a hope that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Because who's Jesus? Jesus is the perfect son of man that this text screams of. He's the one who came into this world and for a little while became lower than the heavenly beings and who did what you and I as those made in God's image were always intended to do, who imaged God perfectly in every way, shape, and form. But he didn't come to judge this world. He didn't come to show us what he was and what we weren't. He came to save. And it says he suffered death the death we deserved, so that we, just as he is raised in resurrection glory and crowned with the glory and honor we were always intended to have, so that we could share in the same thing. And glorious ruins could be transformed into kings and queens of God's kingdom, who bear that image with them, and who share in his rule and in his reign. You are precious God, Jesus says, come to me, and I will make you whole. I will heal what is broken. I will restore what has been torn apart. I will bring you back to what you were created to possess, what you were created for. I will redeem you too, if only you will come. It has implications for us personally. But not only that, it has implications for others. You know, Psalm 8, Psalm 8 doesn't explicitly say this, but it's implied throughout this text. And the rest of the scriptures make explicitly plain what's implied here. If the reason God is mindful of us, the reason he cares for sinful, broken people like us is because of the image of God in us, then how can we who have been redeemed and restored into that image, how can we possibly fail to love those who are made in the same? Why does Genesis 9-6 say that if you kill a human being, you deserve to die? 
Why does Proverbs 17.5 say that the one who mocks the poor mocks their creator? Why does James 3.9 say that it is such an abhorrently wicked thing to curse a human being, something that should probably make us pause before we hit enter on our social media profiles? God says, I'll give you the answer. It's because every single human being bears my image. And when you strike a blow at a person, you strike it not just at the person, but at the one in whose image they're made. John Calvin says it better than I can, and I want us to hear this. This is an extended quote, but it's so good. He says, we are not to consider what men merit of themselves, but to look upon the image of God in all men, to which we owe all honor and love. Therefore, whatever man you meet who needs your aid, you have no reason to refuse to help him. Say he is a stranger, but the Lord has given him a mark that ought to be familiar to you by virtue of the fact that he forbids you to despise your own flesh. Say he is contemptible and worthless, but the Lord shows him to be one to whom he has deigned to give the beauty of his image. Say that he does not deserve even your least effort for his sake. But the beauty of God, the image of God, which recommends him to you, is worthy of your giving yourself and all your possessions. If someone hates you, if they have cursed you and abused you, if they deserve nothing good from you, not even this is reason why you should cease to embrace him and love and to perform the duties of love on his behalf. Instead, we must remember not to consider men's evil intention but to look upon the image of God in them, which cancels and effaces or washes away their transgressions, and with its beauty and dignity, allures us to love and embrace them. That breaks me. Because here's what I have to confess. Far too often, I take the question that David asks in this text. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care? And I twist it. And I make it instead, what is that person that I should care for them? What's that person who hurt me? What's that person who attacked me? What are my little girls that I should be mindful of them when their concerns seem so much smaller than my own? What are those people that I should care? God says you don't get to do that. And this is something that I know it's not just me. We do this all the time, don't we? We do it when we pass through the drive-thru and we barely give the attendant a disdainful glance. We do it when we consider children in the womb and we look at them and we claim they're nothing more than a clump of cells that we can discard without a second thought. We do it when we see people who maybe don't share our political persuasions and we demonize them and we count them as something other and use it as an excuse to ignore the call of God that has been placed on us in Christ to love even our enemies. We do it 
When we see men and women mocked or belittled or oppressed or treated poorly, and we stand by and we try to find excuses for why we should be indifferent. And we have all sorts of reasons, don't we? We say, well, that person, they hate what I love. They're going to destroy something good, something beautiful, and I don't want to see that happen. We say, well, look at their record and the things they've done, or look what they've done to me. And God would stop all of us in our tracks and say, here's the only thing that matters, the question that cuts through all of our self-righteous self-deception, are they made in my image? And if that's the case, then they are worth everything that we possess because they were worth the life of the infinite Son of God, even as we were. This breaks my heart because this, of all people, we should be the most concerned about this, shouldn't we? Because who are we? We're the enemies God loved. We're the ones Jesus could have taken every one of our excuses and applied them to. You hated what I loved. You destroyed what I created. You wounded those made in my image. Your record condemns you, and yet what does Jesus in his grace and in his mercy and in his beauty do? Jesus looked at us, as Calvin said, not for the evil intention in us, but for the image of God in us. And he counted our lives of such worth to himself that in his love he laid down his life so that not only would we be forgiven, not only would we be redeemed, but that we would be restored to what we were always created to have, fellowship with the living God, but also with each other. And we would share in what he rightfully possesses and we don't, to rule and reign in the world that he made. Now this, this is the beauty of the gospel. Which means, when we look at other people and we decide that some have dignity and some don't, there are some whose needs we should meet and others we shouldn't. Some we should care about and others we shouldn't. What we're really doing is denying the very gospel that saved us. Jesus says, Look at the image of God. What are they worth? What's a little girl worth? What are we worth? The life of the infinite Son of God, who even now invites us to throw ourselves in the arms of mercy, to taste the forgiveness that is free, and to be redeemed and restored into the image for which we were made. And to give our lives, as David invites us to, as a sacrifice of praise, relishing the implications for us, but also by the power of his spirit embracing it for others. And he asks us to do this in Jesus' name. Let me pray. Gracious Father, who is a God like you pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgressions of the remnant of your inheritance. 
You are a God of love and of mercy and of grace who cares even for the very least of these. And Lord, everyone in this room, everyone at home, in their houses, Lord, wherever we are, we are living, breathing examples of this. Would you take the hope of your gospel? Would you seal it to our hearts? And would you give us, Lord, through your spirit, the desire not only, not only to receive that ourselves, but Lord, to become those who display that in the way we engage with others. Would you do that in me? In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.